So, uh, yeah, so this is Access Reality. I'm Ali Kadili with Dr. Laura Stark again. So, thank you for making the time. Absolutely. So, one thing I wanted to ask was if somebody is looking for alternative treatments for cancer and they know nothing about it all their life or little next to nothing, mm -hmm. and you look on the internet and you'd be overwhelmed with all the things out there. And we know, and some of it is quackery, right? Absolutely. Um, how, how does somebody know what to do, what not to do? Because they all take time, effort, money. You don't want to go down the wrong path. That's um, a really important discussion. And I think the biggest important thing to think about or realize is that there isn't one answer out there. There isn't this magical cure for cancer or like this is my diagnosis and someone has the perfect solution. I think the critical thing to look for and or recognize is that we need to find the solution that's right for your body in this certain particular situation at this time, you know, with these certain conditions. So how do you turn that into something practical for evaluating all the options out there? Um, step one, I think you need the help of a professional. You cannot navigate Dr. Google by yourself especially for a disease like cancer. It's just too big, too complex. And by all means, do your research and then find your experts to ask questions to. Um, I think that's the approach that really has to happen. And a supposed expert that tells you, or I don't know, you can enter your information online and within 24 hours, they'll spit out what your treatment protocol is. Well, that's not customized, like that's not individualized care. So I'd be wary. There's definitely, there's the type of clinic that, you know, has protocols that are probably more holistic, but still take a very conventional model of here's your diagnosis, then here's what we're going to do. You know, and so they can produce a plan that says you're going to get 18 of these treatments and three of these and XYZ, here's what we're going to do. And that's it. That's your protocol versus asking you a whole bunch of questions to figure out what's going on in your body. You know, what are the potential root causes of what's going on for you right now? What's the condition of your body that you know needs to be addressed immediately? Naturopathically, we look at um, kind of layers of priority. Say if your body can be in a state where it won't be able to handle certain treatments because of other conditions. We need to sometimes address certain issues before we can address the next issue um, versus a kind of conventionally approached cancer model really just looks at the cancer and goes, okay, how do we, you know, how do we get rid of this without really asking the questions of, what are the conditions the body are, is in currently? And how do we address that if that's gonna be an issue to actually be able to maybe tolerate the treatment to get rid of the cancer? Um, so I'm dovetailing around there, but it's all about asking the right questions to figure out how you can get truly individualized care to address your specific situation and needs. Um, I really think that's the critical piece 
Okay, so for example, clear health thin, just because that's a model I'm familiar with, mm -hmm. which is it's um, you get a circuit of treatments that most people get. There's some customization there, mm -hmm. but it's kind of like this is the proposed treatment plan. You go do this, 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 this many treatments. But in addition to that, there's the extra layer of delving deep into people's um, history, particular situations, and really customizing their IV regimens, nutrition, supplements, all of that. Exactly. So is that something that's ideal or, or how can it be even better than that? Yeah. Well, like to address our model a little bit, I, I like to think of our model in layers, right? There's kind of categories of treatment to make sure we're kind of supporting you from every different angle. And there's customization in each of those pockets. So um, the circuit you mentioned, so, you know, we have our, our set of technologies, our tools we use here in office. Their goal altogether is to improve the condition of cellular health. So our body is more capable of healing. So it is encouraged to be able to do all its normal functions of um, like oxygenation, um, to our cells, gentle detoxification, balancing the electromagnetic field of the body so that cellular communication can work optimally. It's all subtle work, but it really does apply to nearly everyone, right? Like you said, there's sometimes adjustments that have to happen case by case, but we've chosen technologies that can be accessed by almost everyone. So that, that was just wise for us to do. Why would we pick really selective things that, well, will only apply to a few people. Um, but, you know, the goal of that segment of treatment is to just improve cellular health and get the body functioning as optimally as possible. So that's kind of like the background platform that some more layers add on to. So another layer is the kind of dietary aspect, right? So we customize food. Often we take a ketogenic approach because we can do a lot of good in a short amount of time with that, but sometimes that's not appropriate for every case. So we, we make adjustments accordingly there. Um, another segment is the supplemental supports. So this is like the regular naturopathic stuff, selection of remedies, medicines uh, from a nutritional or herbal standpoint. Those are really customizable. Um, and are often set up to address some, sometimes those smaller issues, right? Someone might come in and really have um, a history of toxicity that is probably a really leading component to what's going on with their cancer. If we wanna have long-term success, we're gonna to have to deal with that toxicity. So our supplements might be a, um, a stronger layer that we can address some of those components of their case. Um, then we have the segment of the big guns or the more targeted anti-cancer therapies that we have in our natural arsenal. So these are often the IV therapies um, or other injection therapies. And sometimes, sometimes they're not either of those formats, but these are the tools that we consider that sometimes people can replace or will, for whatever reason, when someone's foregoing conventional treatment, maybe they don't tolerate it anymore. Maybe they just, philosophically don't want to go there for whatever reason we still support people um, with or without conventional care here um, and so in that segment sometimes we have tools that we can use to synergize to 
hopefully be able to equate the effectiveness or the kill-off rate that a conventional treatment has. Now, I often explain to people, a good chemo will have a cancer kill-off rate over 80%. So, you know, in a Petri dish study, pour that chemo on, it will kill over 80% of the cancer cells. A really good targeted um, natural therapy is probably around the 40-50% range. So we capitalize on synergy. We want a couple or a few of those tools um, that will add up to more than 100%. Um, we don't have the large scale studies to show us what each combination looks like, but it's kind of the antithesis of an individualized approach. That research model doesn't really work in an individualized approach because it's so complex and multifactorial. So we have to look at the individual and build um, from what we see, what are the concerns of the case and select the most appropriate tools based on that and hopefully capitalize on the synergy that we know happens in the herbal and nutritional world. Um, so that's the big gun segment. The other big segment that doesn't really look like treatment, but I, I feel it's the critical foundation. I probably should have talked about it first rather than last, but it's that assessment piece. So here we use a, a few kind of tools to help us assess or models to help assess a whole patient. Um, one is a modified approach from um, Dr. Natasha, uh, Dr. Nasha Winter's work. Uh, Terrain 10 is her model that looks at uh, 10 kind of root causes or drivers of cancer. We've expanded it to 12, um, but we have a questionnaire, for example, that has a nice overview to uh, help highlight um, which of these underlying priorities are probably top for a patient. Can you list them for me or tell me examples of Ooh, some of them? At least? Yes, let's see if I can list all 12. Should have brought my paper in with me, but um, the ones we- The drivers added, of cancer, you said. Yes, exactly. Okay. Root cause or drivers of cancer. Sure. Oxidation, inflammation, um, blood sugar balance, uh, circulation angiogenesis kind of drivers. Um, Meaning good, because good circulation is generally good for the body, but it's not good to have good circulation for the cancer, right? Kind of, yes. Cancer so that's, that's a difficult problem to... Cancer often has concerns with high clotting factors, so like blood coagulation issues, and then therefore angiogenesis issues. Um, yeah, it, it's a make sense problem to highlight because there's lots of targets um, therapeutically that we can use to address that issue. So sometimes those, uh, these categories match up because we have a good therapeutic target there. Um, that's one. Uh, toxic burden is definitely one. Um, ooh, I've only got five and I have seven more to go. So toxic burden, um, what's an example of that? Why would somebody have a toxic burden? Truly, we all do, right? We are surrounded with a toxic world. We live with plastics and air pollution and water pollution. Um, our body is a great filter, but especially in this last century, we've created a lot of chemicals that our body doesn't know how to process. Um, you know, herbal toxins, naturally occurring toxins, 
we've kind of had a long history for our livers to figure out how to process them. But now we have things like persistent organic pollutants that literally don't go away. For example. They persist. Um, of that category, POPs, they're called um, persistent organic pollutants. Um, and our, our body doesn't know how to get rid of them. So we store them in fat. We, uh, our body just figures out how to sequester them to make them less toxic to us. But we have effective means such as um, a sauna. Sweating is one of the only ways that we can get rid of a lot of um, those interesting toxins um, versus... And that's not regular sauna. Is it, is it a regular sauna or because I know at Clear Health Thin there's a far infrared sauna? Mm -hmm. Most sauna research is actually done in the good old Finnish steam saunas. Oh. It's really just sweating, the act of sweating. Hmm. So uh, the far and near infrared technologies for saunas make it possible to achieve the same effect with less temperature. So it's more comfortable. Yep. So those rays can penetrate the body, induce the sweating, but the ambient temperature around you isn't as intense as a finished sauna where you're like suffocating in the heat. Yeah. So it's a far more comfortable get getting the same net effect. Um, and it's, I guess it's also designed to um, raise your body's core temperature easier um, to get more circulation and immune response. And to some degree, really we have to be able to achieve um, fever level temperature changes to activate the immune system. Um, the temperature increases we do up until that point is really just increasing metabolism. So yes, a sauna increases circulation, um, but I think of it primarily as a detoxification tool in, in that setting versus an immune activation. Does it help in weight loss? If yes. It increases metabolism? Yeah. Precisely. Both through that mechanism of increasing the metabolism and from getting rid of the toxicity so that our fat cells are cleaner, healthier, so that they can actually release that excess fat instead of needing to sequester toxins to keep the body protected. Yep. So, so. You've listed five still so far. On five? <laughs> oh, we got to toxins. That was. I bought you some time you talking did. about the toxins. Yeah. Hormonal regulation is one. Okay. Um, and that's an obvious one thinking about say hormone driven breast cancer. Yep. Um, Blood sugar regulation. I haven't mentioned that one yet, have I? You did, yeah. Oh, crumb. Yep. That was the third one I mentioned. Yeah, and that is that where the ketogenic diet comes in? Part of it, yes, yeah. So exactly. just so people understand, ketogenic diet means low sugar, low carbs. Extremely carbs. low carbohydrate. Okay, and the yes. idea is, is that when your body is now starved, starved of sugar, which is the easiest source of energy, mm -hmm. it has to shift to creating ketones Precisely. Break, break, by breaking down whatever fat you have. So that's the weight loss component of it. Yes. And often in the cancer model, we're, we're not trying to use it for weight loss at all. It's just a side effect. And well, and we can effectively do a therapeutic ketogenic without making it a weight loss diet. Okay. So is the idea but, behind it for cancer patients then mm -hmm. is that the cancer cells need sugar and they when the rest of your body's feeding off of the ketones, they can't utilize ketones. They need the sugar. That's just so, it. So you're selectively starving the cancer. Precisely. Cancer cells um, often get simplified and therefore lose metabolic flexibility. So they very often can only use sugar uh, as their metabolic fuel source um, versus a healthy cell can adapt. It can burn 
proteins, it can burn fats, it can burn ketones, it can burn glucose. So an adaptable healthy cell is just fine no matter what we throw at it versus a cancer cell kind of has its one option. And so if we starve it, we really stress it. Mm -hmm. And so taking that dietary approach that super stresses the cell might even have some direct anti-cancer effects, um, but then it makes it far easier for us to use, say one of our targeted therapies that has a 40% kill off rate, it will give it that fighting edge, that advantage to be that much more effective because we have that cancer cell kind of backed into a nutritional corner. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned the targeted therapies and how they can work synergistically with conventional mm-hmm. therapies. Yes. Is that with each other and with, with conventional therapies, both. Yes. Yeah. So if somebody's getting chemotherapy, then you can add this to it, but are you, is that your preferred method or I know you work with anything, whether somebody mm-hmm. has gotten treatments in the past or is currently getting treatments or is refusing treatments for whatever yeah. reason that you, you would treat them either way. But what is, what is the best uh, option out of all these? What is the best outcome? It totally depends where the person is at, but I really feel for anyone going through conventional treatment, it feels criminal, honestly, to not have the naturopathic layer of support along with the difference that I know how easy it is to make in terms of boosting the effectiveness of that protecting the strength of the body so that someone can withstand and get and actually get the benefit out of conventional treatment. It feels criminal to have people go through conventional without that support. But in truth, my favorite is working with people who for whatever reason are, are not doing conventional at the same time. We have a lot more freedom to use our tools because when we combine with conventional treatment, I need to see research to see. We we'll have to be um, careful about them interacting with whatever they're getting. Precisely. We need confirmed safety data yeah. to know that we can synergize effectively. Um, it would just be irresponsible to blast ahead without that uh, scientific data. So we have our limitations when we work with con- alongside conventional treatment, although we can still do a lot of good. Um, without the complication of those other drugs, we can really build support plans that are as robust as we can. The other benefit is we're working with a stronger, more capable body. The deeper someone is into long-term conventional treatment, honestly, the less and less hope of ever reaching recovery. Okay. Now you mentioned, um, you know, it's criminal to go through conventional therapy without other (laughs) things. So would you advocate for like all conventional cancer centers include some components of naturopathic therapy? Oh my gosh, that would be the dream. Now, are they doing, there's some, it's happening to some extent a little bit, right? I, I know there's it's some true. cancer centers that use high dose IV vitamin C. I think in New York, a couple of the major cancer centers do that. I'm not sure about that, honestly. Yeah, but are you thinking more in Europe where it is, is that, is that the norm over there or is that just some places or? How does that work? Um, probably not the broad spectrum of naturopathic tools, but um, Cancer Centers of America is an example of um, an integrative model hospital that is um, also not super privatized, like it's Medicare accessible. Um, but the naturopaths who work on staff there are fairly limited in what they do. They 
I might be wrong here, but I don't believe they do high dose vitamin IV therapy, even for example, which um, in outpatient naturopathic clinics would be a really commonplace standard um, go-to therapy, but I don't believe they do that. They're limited primarily to basic nutrition, um, maybe some herbal nutritional supports, Oh, maybe some mind-body supports like yoga, meditation. Hmm. And how long um, have they used that model of integrating naturopathic doctors? I honestly have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea how long that's been hmm. going on. At least a decade or two. Yeah. Now back to the beginning, the first question we had. Yes. Which is how can people decide? And you said yes. then they need, don't just rely on what you read yourself here and there because you won't be able to tell yeah. Um, what's legitimate necessarily and what's good for you and what's not. Yeah. Um, seek the guidance of an expert. But the problem is, is how do you find that expert? Like if there was criteria as to, because every website out there, whether it's juicing, whatever it is, they will do, claim to be experts. Yeah. They'll say Dr. So-and-so has had 40 years of experience in treating cancer and, blah, and testimonials. And it's like, Oh my God. So it's true. And then will they say, don't do this, just do this. And you know, how do you, um, how does, what, what advice do you give to someone when they really right. don't know their, their doctor yeah. doesn't really help them in that regard? No. And they're really depending now on almost on just hearsay or their own research. It's true. So ask good questions, ask critical questions. Um, that's definitely one. And the other part as wishy-washy as this sounds I think you have to follow your gut. We have to get better at getting out of our head and all the information overwhelm, you know, the information Google rabbit hole that we go down that just leaves our brain spinning and be able to sit back and ask, ask if this is good for me, whatever it is that we're looking to evaluate and let the answer emerge, not from your head, but from your gut. Um, there's interesting research. We have, we have three brains actually, not just one. We have the brain in our head, which is our good analytical thinker. Um, we have a heart brain, right? We have way more neurons in our heart than we do in our brain. And then we have like horrendously more neurons in our gut than we do even in our heart. I, f I forget the exact numbers, but it's outrageous when you see the, the different numbers. Our gut brain is where we make good decisions actually um is that where you get a gut ache when you're nervous or <laughs> absolutely when you know you're doing the wrong thing your gut's telling you it's not right oh. we know um chinese medicine explains it kind of interestingly that more holistic view of the body that for example our small intestines um that's kind of a the seat of our gut is all about discernment it sorts the the good from the bad right the nutrition from the waste that's the literal function down there. And so that's actually where we need to make our good decisions from. We can gather all the information in our brain and with our heart, we can evaluate kind of how it will affect consequences, relational consequences, you know, how it makes us feel. But ultimately a good right and wrong decision comes from our gut. And so being able to make good decisions for ourselves really comes down to that skill, I believe. Um, we need to be critical and gather our information, but if we can relax into ourselves, 
our intuition knows, it really does. Um, because there's not one perfect solution for everybody. It's going to be different for every person. So for some, for some people, you know, the mental emotional component will be the most important. And so they need to choose a center that will support that to the foremost. And the, the physical therapies that are applied kind of become secondary. There's more than one way to do anything. And so there isn't one set of tools that are the right tools. So for example, we use our nice little circuit. Does any other clinic do that? No, we're totally unique in our approach to do that. Um, but it's what you're accomplishing. You know, there's other ways to accomplish what we do with our circuit um, by choosing different means. So it's not really about the tools and people get really caught up on, oh, I heard this thing was the best, the best thing. Like I need a clinic that has whatever fancy technology. It's not about that at all. So do you get inquiries where somebody inquires and says, okay, do you have this specific thing, hyperbaric Always. oxygen with this? And then you look at their history and it's like, oh my God, they have stage four pancreatic cancer. It's like, like you have bigger fish to fry than looking after that. Looking Correct. <laughs> All the time. People get really externally focused when they're looking to be saved, which makes sense. But the realization that needs to happen to make that shift to make good progress is really recognizing that the cure does, it never comes externally. Healing is not applied to the body ever. Healing comes from within. The job of the healer, per se, is to identify your needs, identify the blockages in your body, and set you up for success, kind of point you in the right direction, remove the obstacles, support you with what you need, and let the body work its magic. The body knows what it's doing, but it usually needs help because we're not good at listening to it, which, that practice of making your decision from your gut, we have to do that same sort of work to be able to access healing because it happens within. It is not ever going to be found in some fancy technology outside of you, mm. ever. Now that I think for a lot of conventional doctors who would listen to this, they'd feel that that's antithetical to how <laughs> everything they know, right? Absolutely. But in reality, it's not. Um, no. Like even like as a surgeon, let's say you so you know, a piece of something together with something else. Yeah, that healing happens yeah, it's, without you, It's right? not the sutras you're putting in. You're no. just holding it in place for the body's reaction to heal. Precisely. Right? Yep, you're making sure it's clean. You're making sure it's yeah. put together nicely. So the just, setup is there. Yeah, you're providing the conditions. You're Precisely. setting You're setting it up for the band, but then the body has to do it itself. Correct. If it doesn't, then it's not going to work. Well, and so there's kind of the magic, right? We need a certain amount of resiliency and vitality left in the body. Um, and we spoke to this um, a little bit in a previous conversation, recognizing the, the healing power of nature, one of the principles of naturopathic medicine, the beast medicatrix, nature and I. Um, good naturopathic medicine seeks to stimulate that vital force and actually that's what our circuit is really designed for. I, I always describe it to people as old school nature cure um, with modern technologies. So we apply 
um, like water and heat and like temperature changes and water and oxygen, natural elements, we apply them to the body to stimulate various responses to get to get aroused out of the body. Basically, we're poking and prodding that vital force to respond to do its healing work. And that's exactly why the deeper someone gets into long-term conventional treatment, that we have less and less success because the damage of the conventional treatment makes it so that the vital force is just too damaged to respond. So you have to rely on the super-powered external tools to basically palliate and just keep a person alive artificially versus having their own vital force actually renew and repair the system. Do you have some patients who come to you and say, you know, I met with the oncologist. These are the treatments. These are the toxicities. They still recommended I go with it. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Do you ever give a definitive opinion on that and tell them, yes, go for it or don't go for it? Uh, Just like in the conventional world, we need to talk stats, right? It's, always ultimately the patient's decision and it has to be it has to come from them um in in my world that's my opinion um an oncologist might say absolutely not like you i've i've heard that actually from a patient who has uh, been told by their oncologist stop thinking i'm making the decisions for you now yeah so when Ooh, you so when, when gives the, me the yeah but when the patient involves you drags yes. drags you into this and they are not making a definitive decision on their own. They're not listening to their oncologist and they haven't definitively gone against their oncologist yeah. either. And they're coming to you to seek extra information. So at this point, you know that if you nudge them one way or the other, even in a subtle way, they might, it might have an effect. It might, they might decide to not go Sometimes. for chemotherapy or something. So how do you... So we have a really honest conversation, right? We lay those cards out and look at those factors. And I try to identify for them the factors going on in them of why they're being indecisive or trying to give their power to me to make the decision for them and why they won't make the decision for themselves. So we, we get into those process conversations because I won't let someone pin it on me. It has to be their decision. And I do that because I know they won't have success if they're relying on someone external to tell them what to do. But your position isn't, your position is not just listen to your oncologist and then we'll talk. Your position is. No, I, no, I see my job as needing to sometimes help coach that patient through their decision-making process, right? I can hold that space for them to help them do that. I won't make the decision for them, but I can help them navigate how to make those decisions. Okay. So like I, for example, like my personally, my approach, if somebody came to me and you know, my part is to do the surgery, but yep. then of course I know they're going to the cancer center too. Yep. And then sometimes they'll come and say, well, I don't want to do this. I want to do my go-to line is always no, follow the advice of your doctor. You can do other things if you want in addition to that, but make sure everybody knows about it and everybody's okay with it. Yes. Is that, is that too conservative of an approach or too close minded of an approach or like, what are your, your For thoughts? For me, it really depends where the patient is at. Uh, you know, for someone who, for example, um, it can understand and work with a German medicine approach. They have a different sort of tool bag at their disposal. (sighs) 
it really is judging how competent and confident the patient is standing in their own decision-making abilities, right? Someone who is not confident in moving forward and clearly you can see their fears and the trepidation sometimes. But sometimes they have made their decision. They're almost 90% there and they're looking for you to just validate Validate. because they've decided they don't want to do it, but they just want that extra one person to tell them to cheer them on and whatever they were thinking of doing. It's true. Well, and then there's that process decision. Is that about just needing someone in your corner to help support you? Like, and maybe I am that person that, yep, I'm here for you. So when you have an issue or you have a concern, like, yes, I am here that I can help you navigate that. So great. That's the confidence they needed because they knew they couldn't do it by themselves. Sometimes that might, might truly be the case. So we just have a process conversation about that. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, so of the uh, treatments that you have of uh, the circuit that we discussed, mm-hmm. um, do you, is the approach completely individualized? It really is. Yeah. Yeah. To every layer. Yeah. So okay. they, every whole plan contains each of those segments of care, but each of those segments of care is totally individualized to the patient's needs at the time. Yeah. And can you just walk me through a hypothetical example of somebody with, let's say, stage four ovarian cancer, which we know has a very poor prognosis. Yeah. Give me a typical day or week as to what they would be doing if they came under your care at Clear Health. Yeah. In our full support program. Yeah. Where are they at? Have they just finished conventional treatment perhaps and are awaiting their next diagnosis of recurrence? Yeah, that might so, be a prime time. Yeah, so I mean, quite often those patients either would have gotten chemotherapy. I mean, I mean, we said stage four, so it's by definition considered to be incurable. Yeah, right? exactly. So either they would have gotten chemotherapy, which maybe radio- radiologically resolved the disease a little bit, but they're in rough shape now in their health, um, or they're in between two treatments, mm-hmm. or yeah, I'm to, or, that's probably a prime location for us to. Yeah. And some of them are so far advanced that they just tell them, look, the risk of toxicity with your age, it's not worth it. We're not going to accomplish anything. Yeah. Then they come to you. So what would you do for that? So this person in my head is probably dealing with ascites in their gut as well. Um, We've seen that typically a few times. Um, And that, and so in that situation, say that becomes a pressing issue that we can address. So, now, typically, that's something that they might go to the emergency room to get it drained every now and then, right? Yes. So hopefully, it's not critical by the time. Correct. If it's if it's critical, exactly, they're probably getting drained. Yeah. But we want to be uh, preventative and managing as best we can because each one of those drains puts a greater strain on the body. It often disrupts electrolyte balance and disrupts our uh, protein holding abilities, and people can. Um, slide into a dangerous situation fast if they're um, collecting a lot of fluid and getting it drained rapidly. So that's where they're internally dehydrated mm-hmm. because they're losing all this fluid. Yes. They, they, they don't have the ability to keep the fluid in their blood. It's all being pumped out into that space. And then, and then it gets drained and now they're still dehydrated. Yeah. The proteins follow into that space and now 
what should be the albumin in their blood that carries all sorts of molecules, their nutrition and all, all sorts of, it's the kind of carrying compound, little shuttle drivers in our blood. They're all in that abdominal space getting drained away. And that's when people will, will slip into that um, cachexia state of, of wasting. They can't hold on to their nutrition or get enough in. And you know, I suppose the stats around 40% of cancer patients die of malnutrition. Right? Not on my watch. So one of the nutritional tools I know we're going to have that person working with is some free amino acids. Um, there's a great uh, supplemental so you to, product. So you try to give them proteins. Absolutely. But what about the blood vessels themselves being leaky and the, they're just losing all the proteins? Right? Mm -hmm. So that's often an oxidation or inflammation issue. So we're going to be choosing maybe in our big gun category, we might choose a therapy like um, high-dose curcumin. Um, a powerful anti-inflammatory with a lot of anti-cancer mechanisms. Intravenously, we can administer doses that are radically higher than anything we can achieve orally and have really significant effects. Um, that would be a good choice in that situation because it's going to be addressing that underlying inflammation issue. And it's not going to provide the fluid burden, say of a high dose vitamin C, I would say some practitioners would do it, but that would not be my first choice because I know the fluid strain it's going to put and every dose of vitamin C I give that person's swelling is going to get worse. I don't want to do that. So curcumin might be a really interesting option for that person. So that's a good example of how you individualize your choices. Absolutely. That, you know, high dose vitamin C might be our standard go-to anti-cancer. But in that situation, it's actually going to be, it'll, it'll make that person worse. It might yeah. be an effective anti-cancer tool, but Just it will make their situation worse. To be clear, it's an anti-inflammatory. Is that correct? Curcumin? Vitamin C. Vitamin C. Uh, not directly. They're Antioxidant. Be they're beginning to study it in the ICU. Yes. And the intensive care unit for people with overwhelming sepsis. Yes. Septic shock. Precisely. So the theory there is that somehow it mitigates that the consequences of septic shock and the inflammation with that. It's not been studied yet. It's, yeah, well, it, mechanistically. It is, it, it, it is being studied understood. now, Yes, just as far as what the effect is, yeah, but uh, in trials. So. I would bet primarily it's in immune system strengthening and providing greater immune competence. Yes. Um, in higher doses, it, yeah. is, it has been shown to be an effective antiviral, anti-acting antimicrobial, but I know this, even the sepsis studies are far lower <clears throat> dose than we would normally use in a clinical setting for yeah. antiviral effects. Yeah. And you're right. But, it is primarily immune system. Uh, yeah, stimulation. yeah, exactly. Even orally, yeah. we can use it that way. Um, but it is an antioxidant in its lower doses as well. So that helps stabilize the byproducts of inflammation, right? Inflammation leads to oxidative damage in the body. So a little chicken and egg, a few steps removed, yep. but it helps stabilize that whole system. But when we're using it in high doses, it's actually a, a pro-oxidant um, selectively for cancer cells, but um, the rest of the body, healthy cells will still use it as an antioxidant. Um, yeah, a little vitamin C sidetrack there. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, what, uh, are there any I know you said um, there's lots of treatments out there and some would work for some people, some not for others. It has to be individualized, but 
Are there some that you think truly are bogus and just don't work in most situations <laughs> that people shouldn't go into, that that will be a red flag if they see it? Well, I'm decently open-minded. I, I have some colleagues who will say absolute hogwash to certain things. I say absolute hogwash to certain ideas. Okay. But I think that sometimes people will find a tool that they see as effective. They're like, oh, I'm getting an effect and make up a crazy theory about why. <laughs> and then that becomes the explanation of why it works. That explanation is total hoo-ha. Mm -hmm. And they're just barking up the wrong tree. But they might have, for example, a herb that has interesting anti-cancer properties, but it's an anti-parasitic herb. And they've concluded that you know, cancer is a parasite. And then that leads to other weird ideas about how we should treat it. I mean, can you keep up with all these theories that keep popping up? No, I ignore them. Yeah. <laughs> and are there, are, there, are, there, are there some that are fairly mainstream in the alternative health world, mm -hmm. if you could use such a word, that you think are somebody, if they have a serious cancer problem, they should not go that route? Here's one example that's really accessible. People think it's super safe and it's not. Um, high dose bicarb therapy, sodium bicarbonate, baking soda. There's uh, a few different practitioners who um, advocate for high dose um, bicarb therapy. Like how orally or IV or even both. So, um, so here's one example. Dr. Simoncini is an Italian um, physician who he has the Simoncini protocol. Um, I actually reached out to him and contacted him. Um, consulted with him for a patient who I carried out his IV um, high-dose bicarb protocol for. Um, in her first round of treatment, um, this was a unique case because she had an accessible tumor that she could monitor herself for changes in it. Is that why you picked her or why did you pick her for that therapy? She picked it herself. Oh. She brought it to me and said, I, this is what I want to do. What did you tell her? I told her his ideas were a little wild. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is a man who believes that cancer is a fungus. Mm -hmm. Cancer is not a fungus. We yeah. know this. Yeah. But he was like, but look at it. Sometimes it's white and it looks like a fungus. Well, just because it looks like a fungus doesn't it's mean it is a fungus. But is sodium bicarb a treatment for a fungus? He Any says way? sodium bicarb is the best antifungal treatment there is. Well, that's also... Yeah. Uh, but we do know, we have research that shows us that when you, um, say, put bicarb around a tumor, it temporarily blocks its ability to metastasize or spread through angiogenesis. And I think that's how he does it. He doesn't give you bicarb systemically. He tries to, wait, he tries to find a way. For example, if it's in your lungs, he'll put a tube in there and spray it directly on the tumor. It's true. That's that is it. one that... of his approaches to um, yeah, catheterize right around a tumor to yeah. saturate around. But he does have an yeah. IV protocols as well for systemic disease. And that's what I administered for this patient. Oh. And then so like, I'm wondering why he didn't go for antifungal treatments. Some other doctors do, right? If he thinks it's a fungus. Oh, well, he says bicarb is antifungal. Hmm. All right. Did it work for your patient? <laughs> uh, it seemed to in the first round, and then it absolutely did not when we had rapid growth in our second round of treatment. Yeah. And it was really hard on her. 
so um, one of the consequences of that. But that's she, what I'm saying is the, these things are serious. I mean, you precisely to go up the wrong road in something like this, you know. So the consequence of that one, bicarb, people are like, oh, it's just baking soda. It's super safe. Well, high dose bicarb. So this patient had digestive issues as kind of a, a prerequisite and the dose of bicarb completely suppressed her stomach acid. So she had extreme difficulty eating through mm. that treatment. And we really had to prop her up with excessive digestive enzymes so she could get any nutrition in. So that was risky business of that treatment. So it worsened um, the malnutrition. Yes. Well, we had to bring in other supports to help her manage that. What cancer did she have? Uh, she had a vulvar cancer. Ah. Mm -hmm. So he just gave her systemic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, see, the, the, the other issue isn't... I mean, whether or not the treatment he's giving itself works for him or anyone else is one thing. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, is that patient in the time that she dedicated herself to doing, going down that road. Was not doing something she else. She wasn't doing other things that could have helped. And that's the classic oncology argument. Exactly. And so <laughs> she, she probably wasn't getting the chemotherapy that they recommended. Is that right? No. Well, and she was refusing it anyway. Yeah. She would not go there. Okay. So she refused it anyway. So she wasn't going to get that done. Yeah. Eventually, she did do radiation. Okay. And her fourth recurrence, I believe it was. Hmm. Was it localized or? Yeah. Well, if it's localized, why wouldn't she get conventional treatment, right? I, I can understand yeah. if it's stage four and they're telling you, you're going to die no matter what. We're going to give you a treatment. Uh, it might prolong your life, but you live miserably. Right. There's this very different circumstances to yeah. consider what's best. So in that situation, I'd understand if somebody says, okay, well, if I do this, I want to also look out for other things. And, you know, that's one thing, but. Yeah. But for her, it was massive fears, right? She felt extremely fragile in herself, like long-term over the years, and was so, so fearful of the conventional world mm. that she, just, she couldn't go there. So you must think that oncologists have the worst communication styles of all because you see all the sometimes people. oh see, gosh the you, stories i get from patients it's yeah, true yeah because you see all the people that didn't go well and they came to you right? always yeah. okay. <laughs> i very much have that selection bias i huh. i recognize and i always remind my patients that yeah. it's not their fault <laughs> yeah. it's not the oncologist's fault sometimes they they have to work within a system of parameters don't most sometimes. cancer centers now i think especially in the states maybe not in canada but because in the States, they're bigger, I think, on, you know, interface with patients and communication. Mm. But they have uh, specialists like navigators or nurses that their role is simply to explain to the patient the treatments. They're like the go-between for communication. Oh, yeah. Often I think that's the patient advocate here. But yeah, they that, usually that don't hire. get involved unless yeah. the patient complains this is a lot, lot. Yeah. and yeah, yeah, makes a big stink. <laughs> yeah. No, I know when you go, if you go to the Mayo Clinic, for example, yeah. um, right away, yes, you're assigned you have someone. like a case manager. Exactly. You might meet oh. with your doctor, you might meet with, but your main go-to person is yes. this and you can text them. And That's such a fantastic model. Yeah. It's so important to have someone at the hub of your care who can coordinate all those different people. Yeah. Um, the beginning, I thought, my God, this is an admission that doctors aren't good at communicating with patients. But well, then, let them be good at their job. Exactly. I think that's the argument for it. Yes. Is right, because rather exactly. than them spending a lot of time just explaining, yeah. you know, spend the time that you need to form a rapport and explain it. Yeah. But, Create the treatment plan. Yes. Assess the patient. Exactly. Your skills kind of are needed 
you know, elsewhere. Precisely. Because some patients will need a really big handhold um, and others don't. But every patient, I think, has the right and need to be fully informed so that they can actually provide informed consent for all the treatments they receive. And that in the world of patients I see, that usually doesn't happen. Right? They get told and it's how much they press for more information that actually depends on how much information they get. Yep. They're just told this is, this is what you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So back to that, we said, uh, like, just give us an example. Somebody with stage four oh, yeah. ovarian cancer, just, she came to you, she's at clear health in, mm -hmm. um, just walk me through like a typical regimen of most of the things she'd be getting. Indeed. So on the day to day, so she'd be provided prepared meals. Um, ovarian cancer is one of those very um, insulin sensitive ones. So we would probably definitely have her um, moving towards as strict ketosis as we could get her on. Um, so she'd have prepared meals being delivered to her that she can snack on through the day while she's here. Um, five days a week, at least she'd be going through her little circuit. So is that if, like a four hour commitment today? Kind of yep. Approximately yep. four hours. And then longer on the days where we add on, um, say IV therapies. Um, so, and that might be two or three days out of, out of the five in the week. So in those days, extra time. Yep. Might be six to eight hour day. Hmm. Um, but she gets to hang out in our lovely relaxing lilac environment, <laughs> which is totally by design because we want you stuck in parasympathetic rest and relax mode. Cause that's when you do your healing. So that's the other okay. reason. One of the background reasons we selected our treatment model the way we did, because we're trying to force you into relaxation spa mode. It looks like a spa day kind of. Um, so she would hop between her therapies. She might start out with an hour in the hyperbaric chamber, doing some deep breathing in there and chillaxing. Um, then she might jump over to the salt chamber. Um, this is a cool tool primarily to help condition the mucous membranes and detoxify through the lungs. But salt is an excellent antimicrobial and decongestant. So it helps pull inflammation out of mucous membrane tissues. And we find particularly for people undergoing treatment, it's a great way to prevent secondary infections um, in the respiratory tract because it just keeps them clean and sanitized that way. Um, so she might hop through there next, do more deep breathing exercises, um, maybe over to the sauna next, where we're definitely gonna want to be sweating her out if she's collecting extra fluids. Um, we're probably going to be having her sip some teas throughout the day. Um, and here we'd probably focus on some diuretic action for her with our herbal tea selection, maybe some cleavers. So even pick the tea, individualize that according to what they, what you think they need at the time. Absolutely. Um, so sweat out some of that liquid in the, um, in the sauna. Uh, oh, we forgot to talk about the myopulse. Um, this is a, a neat little piece of technology that can be applied to a lot of different places in the body, but we primarily use the facial. It feels like you're getting a facial treatment, but really what we're doing is using microcurrent that adjusts to the level of resistance it re reads in the body. So it adjusts to optimize itself, kind of like a biofeedback does, but it's supplying a microcurrent to 
the brain to induce parasympathetic tone. So we have our environment by design, but we also apply some um, electrical therapy that way to induce those parasympathetic brain chemicals to get you into relax and heal mode. Um, so that might be next on her docket and then into say the tub, um, the detox tub, both alkalinizing and another way to draw out acid waste from the body. Um, we use pure de de dead sea salts um, as well as extra bicarb and some other fun ingredients in there. Throughout that day, we also incorporate aromatherapy specific to the patient. Um, there's light or color therapy that gets incorporated in, in the tub. We kind of double up on that therapy in the tub and in the sauna as well, um, where we can use different frequencies to, again, well, light therapy is kind of an interesting one. We're actually providing the body photons of energy to use. So just like trees um, use photosynthesis and pick up energy from the light and incorporate it into their cells, human cells do that too. So that's what we're doing in color therapy. It sounds like, what? It's just a colorful light. No, we're actually providing external energy to the body um, at a certain frequency, a vibration level to, um, we can choose our colors for, for different effects. Um, so the change in color is really a change in the frequency of the energy that you're delivering. Precisely. And how do you decide what to do? Like how to change it? Different colors have their different properties. Like end of the day, every single one is providing energy fuel for cells. And there's subtle differences in um, the different frequencies and what it resonates best with in the body. So sometimes we're choosing um, uh, a light frequency that will resonate with a certain organ system best. Um, we often start with our purple color, which is kind of the master healer. Um, but we adjust accordingly. Um, so those nice little add-on things through our circuit. So on the day-to-day, -day, she's experiencing that in clinic. Now she will have also had a um, supplemental prescription made for her. So, um, you know, she'd be taking some supplements through the day as, as well. Um, and then, like we said, two or three days of the week, likely, depending on the case, um, an IV therapy would also be added, and that's going to be one of the targeted anti-cancers. So we talked, curcumin might be a really good choice for her. Mm -hmm. um, do you usually do more than one IV therapy, or just one, or again, does that depend? It depends on the situation. So another that actually might be really appropriate for her that we might alternate with, for example, could be IV ozone. It's an interesting tool to move fluid. Um, there's apparently some uh, studies going on at Mayo right now, um, researching its anti-cancer properties. Those are poorly understood. Um, a number of years ago, people said, oh, like hogwash, it doesn't, have, doesn't do anything for cancer, but it has these other interesting secondary effects. It's a broad spectrum antimicrobial. It will kill anything, viruses, bacteria, fungus, yeasts. Um, it will help kill infection of all sorts. Um, and it's a powerful immune booster. It works by basically upregulating every cytokine in our body, both the inflammatory and the prone pro-inflammatory and the anti-inflammatory, just across the board, increases cytokines, which are our chemical messengers. 
telling our body to do things. Um, but the net results look like anti-inflammatory action. It's um, interesting effects for say inflammatory bowel disease or arthritis, um, amazing immune boosting effects and circulation enhancing effects. So some people with, with swelling will actually notice the swelling going away as, as they're dripping. So is this where you're giving them ozone directly through the blood? Yes. So the treatment looks like we attach you to a basically empty IV bag, drain out a cup of, a cup of your blood, put ozone gas in that blood, mix it in. Then we hang the bag up, give that ozonated blood back to you. Wow. Yeah. Sounds pretty interesting and complicated. It's an amazing magical therapy. Wow. I, I have come to uh, explain those basic mechanisms that we know about and then add magic as the last mechanism because the things that we see it do are really quite incredible and unexplainable. Raising a patient's hemoglobin 10 points overnight. Wow. That doesn't happen without a transfusion. Now, is there any risks of that with um, oxygenation or oxygen radical creation or um, does it not that's, do that? That's its mechanism right? Ozone is O3 gas and it's that reactive third oxygen molecule. Because some of that can be harmful too, right? Oxygen radicals. It's true. Um, so the reaction happens really quite quickly in that bag of blood. So those oxygen radicals are going to used up before we even put the blood back in the body. Um, but in, in that dose, it really is therapeutic. Um, you can get doses way, way, way higher but yeah, that radical oxygen thing is a complex set of physiology that we need oxidative stress, but we don't want to overdo oxidative stress. It's one of those um, kind of hormetic effect things where the body needs the challenging stimulus to mount an appropriate response to stay healthy enough. So but it's it, too much of a good thing can be really bad then. Precisely. For oxygen. But if we get rid of it entirely, also not a good thing. So there's a sweet spot in the middle for that oxidative stress to keep the body responsive enough. Yeah, so we had our big gun therapies. Now the other aspect, um, well, we would have gone through that root cause assessment to kind of make the decisions about what all her treatments looked like. Um, but the other aspect we haven't talked about is kind of the mind body. And depending on a patient's readiness or willingness to go there, that would be incorporated in some various ways, um, depending on what suits the patient best. So we might give someone some journaling prompts to dive into on their own. Uh, we might sit down and have a pointed German medicine discussion related to her case and kind of figuring out the ins and outs in the background of why she is where she is um, and help her navigate through that. Um, we may give her some guided visualization or um, meditation techniques, breathing techniques to work through um, and focus on that. You know, when she goes home to her, um, her suite she's staying at um, for the overnights, for things to do. We might assign some tasks like that. We might bring in some weekend programming too, maybe some art therapy, maybe some group yoga classes, uh, these sorts of things. So depending on the case, we'll, we'll find those extra enrichments that are most appropriate to that patient to really make it a holistic experience that takes care of them on all those levels, right? The mm -hmm. physical, but also the, the mental, emotional, even spiritual, if you will. Yeah. Hmm. 
Well, that's excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, anything else you wanted to add before we end? You know what? I think it all comes back to figuring out how to listen to ourselves, ask good questions, and let your gut give you good answers. Yeah, and don't allow yourself to be overwhelmed by what's out there, information -wise. Deep breaths, right? Yeah. Get back in your body. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much. Thank you.